Hi, I'm Eric from Cincinnati, and uh, I'll be attending the University of Chicago next year. Um, Good. But when you speak of human capital, uh, do you think that this tends to create tools rather than human beings to uh, shape the educational process in such a way that it's geared towards productivity rather than uh, knowledge and education? And do you think that this will lead to a world in which few are educated to lead and many are educated to follow? That's well, a good question. No, I, I think just the opposite. Uh, it will lead to a world that by putting appropriate emphasis on the necessity of having learning and training in the modern world, it will lead to governments and families putting more emphasis on the importance of knowledge and information. Now, how people use the knowledge they obtain and acquire. I mean, that will be very flexible. Some will go into research, an activity that many of us here have spent most of our lifetimes at. And that will be fine. Others will go into starting businesses, and that's also very important, uh, important generator of well-being for people. Others will go into more cultural uses of their knowledge. So what, what people do with it, you know, is up to the individual. And by uh, putting the emphasis on individual choice, you allow for more degrees of flexibility in how people make use of their education and training rather than less. I think it will have the opposite effect. Uh, it will lead to a, a, a broader and more flexible application of the training and knowledge that people acquire. I think you'll find that when you come to the University of Chicago. Uh, we'll help welcome you to Chicago when you come there. <laughs> Uh, Scott Pearsall, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of your colleagues at the University of Chicago recently published a paper stating that uh, he believes one of the reasons the, there was a drop in the crime rate in the 90s was due to the legalization of abortion in the 70s. And I was wondering how you feel about that. <laughs> well, that's my colleague, Steve Levitt, very, uh, very able young economist at the, uh, we're happy to have at the University of Chicago. Um, Levitt, with, with a, with a a collaborator did a very ingenious study on trying to link the uh, legalization of abortions that started in the early 70s, that's the study you're referring to, to subsequent crime rates in terms of the births that were prevented and, and the families in which they prevented, the age of, of the mothers of which they prevented the like. He gave that paper in our workshop in very early stages, and we gave them a lot of criticisms of the paper, and they went back and revised it. I think they, they have a good point. I don't think that's the most important factor in the, in the sharp decline in crime that we've seen in the last 20 years. There are a bunch of other factors, including um, greater conviction for criminals, greater imprisonment for criminals, better educational opportunities for individuals so that legal jobs, legal activities were a better alternative than criminal, and we can go on with a bunch of others. But I do believe that it was one factor in the declining crime, not the most important in my judgment, but one factor. So I think, yes, it's an excellent study. You always have to be careful in social sciences. You don't want to build too much on any one study. We can't very readily devise a decisive study through experimentation and the like. We have to deal with the experiments grown up by public policy and a lot of other events. This was one experiment thrown up. 
I think they did a very ingenious statistical analysis of it, but I wouldn't take that one study and conclude that therefore whatever we may think about the legalization of abortions, that this had a, a large effect on the crime rate 20 years later because of the fact that it prevented certain births among certain women in certain uh, uh, income and, and other categories. Okay. Hi, I'm Donnie Levine from Washington, D.C. And um, I was wondering, you talked about how you thought that in Mexico, you said that um, increasing education was beneficial, um, taking the kids out of working in the sweatshop environments. I was wondering how you felt about um, the FTAA and NAFTA. I know there's been a lot of controversy lately, and one of the major arguments against the FTAA and NAFTA is that it increases the occurrence of sweatshops and reduces um, the appeal of education. I was wondering what you thought your argument was. Oh, good question. You're asking tough questions, <laughs> and I'm glad to get them. Um, that's the sort of questions you love to get. I'm a strong supporter of NAFTA, uh, absolutely. I think NAFTA has been beneficial to the United States, but has been mainly been beneficial to Mexico. And if you look at almost any dimension of Mexico's uh, economic situation since NAFTA went into effect around 1995, you see great benefits. And I have, uh, I have a student from Mexico who's just completing a dissertation for, for me on what happened as a consequence of NAFTA. Uh, unemployment. It's still high in Mexico, but it's gone down since NAFTA started. Wage rates have grown throughout the country of all groups. It's true, more so for the more educated uh, Mexican workers and for less educated, which surprises a lot of economists for reasons I don't have the time to go into, but it, it did happen. But for all groups, it grew. Uh, foreign investment in Mexico increased greatly. Um, by almost any dimension, Mexican health has improved and, and so on. So Mexico has been the major beneficiary in action. I think it's been a very positive benefit. Now, whenever you get a policy like that, you're never going to get 100% benefits. And I'm sure you can find some individuals who, who, who are hurt by it. But if you look at broad groups, whether by education, by family background, or by any other dimension, uh, NAFTA has been a very positive force for Mexico and has on the whole helped the United States, although for us it's been a really minor factor because our trade with Mexico is, is major for Mexico. Uh, Mexico's trade with the United States is minor for the United States. But I think it's been a win-win situation for everybody, and um, I hope uh, we continue, and, I'm sure, and, and most, uh, in most polls in Mexico, it turns out that it's very popular in Mexico as well. Hello, my name is Jeffrey Johnson. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And I was wondering how we could correct the trade deficit that we have with China and Japan. What causes the, what's the factors that underlie the trade <laughs> deficit? <laughs> Take a long time to go into that, but it's a good, another good, good question. I don't think it's, it's really uh, the right way to look at it, to look at trade deficits with particular countries or in the aggregate, because we're involved in a multi, nation trade. We may have deficits with countries like China and Japan. We'll have surpluses uh, with uh, other countries, like with Mexico. We have a small surplus. We 80 percent of Mexican imports of the United States, 75 percent of their exports of the United States, but it's, it's a bit of a surplus. Uh, but uh, the newspapers make a great deal out of whether we're running a trade surplus overall or a deficit. 
and I think it's a wrong question to ask. You may be running a trade deficit because you're importing a lot of capital from abroad, which the United States is doing, capital that's productively used in the United States. The other side of a surplus on the capital account is a deficit on the goods and, and uh, services account. And so a deficit may be very valuable for a country if it's, if it's the other side of the coin of getting a lot more capital invested in the country that is, raises income and helps everybody. Uh, so even deficits overall aren't the right measure. But for individual countries, you know, we're involved in dealing with 100, 150 countries. And evaluation of what trade is doing for any country like the United States must look at the total picture. It's inevitable when you're trading with 100 countries, with some of them you're going to have surpluses and some of them you have, you're going to have deficits. Uh, whether the overall picture is good or bad depends on what the trade as a whole is doing for the country, uh, positive or negative. And I think there's no doubt that the United States, along with pretty much every other country involved in the world trade, benefits from having trade compared to the situation, with the alternative situation, if we had to do everything on our own. I mean, we, we, we import a lot of goods that are more effectively produced elsewhere, not only raw materials, but many types of goods, uh, machinery from Germany, uh, fruits and vegetables from Mexico, and you can go on and on, uh, textiles from China. Uh, and we're, we're great beneficiaries of having the access to the productive capabilities of other countries. So look at tr trade deficits overall, and when you look at them overall, also look at what's happening to the capital that we're importing or exporting. And only then can you begin to get a judgment about whether trade is benefiting us or hurting us. So I think, yes, it's fine to have the deficits with China and Japan. Uh, that wouldn't be the way you'd want to evaluate trade policy and trade effects. I'm afraid we're out of time, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you.